Father, thank you that you do hold us fast, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, uh, that you who redeemed us with your blood, secured us with the Spirit of God who is our earnest, our down payment, promising that the good work that you began that you will complete. We thank you that when you call us to yourself, you call us to a commission to go and win the lost, to make disciples, and then to do the process of discipleship, teaching them all that I've taught you to observe, you said. And so we want to sharpen our uh, spiritual swords to be able to do that as effectively as possible. So help us to gird up our minds for truth tonight. Uh, Help me, fill me, anoint me, use me, and help all those who will listen to this message in the months ahead, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in the uh, eighth topic in our discipleship course. I'll just briefly review where we've been. This particular topic is developing an eternal perspective. You have a new handout tonight. If you missed last week's, it will be online tomorrow for you to um, print out. And there are six objectives Uh, We're just trying to accomplish in these first three weeks, at least the first objective, to distinguish between the judgment the unsaved will face for sin and the judgment that Christians will face for service. Well, to think with an eternal perspective, among other things, Roman number one, we saw we needed to think about the shortness of life. And um, we saw from Psalm 39, because life is short, we need to set our hope on the living God. And then B on the outline, uh, we also studied from uh, Psalm 90 that we needed to recognize that because life is short, we should consider our mortality. And so Moses, the man of God who only wrote one psalm in all of the psaltery, he gave us Psalm 90. It's the oldest psalm, of course. And among other things, he reminded us, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or like a watch in the night. And so he said, as for the days of our life, in Psalm 90 and verse 10, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is only trouble and sorrow or tragedy. So he says, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. That was last week. Um, Here on your outline, I'll just review a little bit to Uh, help us to transition into point C. I filled in the blanks for you, so I'll just read those. We covered this last time. It's interesting that he, Moses, said the normal lifespan was 70. If due to strength, 80, he lives to be 120. Aaron, 123. Joshua died at 110. Their ages were a rare exception because by this time in human history, as the ages of people continued to drop after the flood, the average age was 70, given neither as a promise or a limit, but just as a general estimate. And it pretty much holds even across the world. We're a little bit higher in the United States of America because of the medicine and the technology that we share, but still not many folks live after 80. With that said, um, his stress is not on how long we live, but how short we live. Years filled with trouble and tragedy in a fallen world that quickly go by. So in light of who we are and who God is, notice what he prays. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. When he says teach us to number our days, he's asking for wisdom knowing that this is something that must be learned and is not automatic. You don't have to pray about it if it's given, right? 
So this is a good thing to pray about. I was on a radio show today. I do it once a month. It's on about 600 stations across America. And he said, what are some of the things that we should be praying for in these last days? And I said, well, among other things, that we would, like Moses, pray that God would help us to number our days that we might live wisely. Um, Most people with little awareness of really how short life is, um, and the younger one is, he tends to think that his days are without number. We tend to prioritize what we think is important, and so people can count their money and count their goods and maybe even their years, but those years are made up of days that represent a lifetime. We need to live with a sense of our mortality so as to invest our lives. When we make Moses' prayer our prayer and God answers his prayer, showing us how to number our days, then we will have a heart of wisdom, which is not only for the mind, but for the heart too. All right, that brings us to point C. This is new ground that we're plowing. Recognize life is short. We should live in, recognizing life is short, we should live in humble dependence on God. So knowing it's short, our hope is in the Lord. Knowing it's short, we should reflect on how short it is, our mortality, that we're not here forever, and we should live in humble dependence on God. James reminds us that because life is so temporal, that we must not act arrogantly, but we must live in humility if we're going to invest in eternity. In James 4, 13 to 16, he instructs us that because our life is like a vapor, we must not have an attitude of independence from God, but of humility. Listen to these words. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, We will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So James pictures for us a self-centered person living his or her life, not in light of eternity, but only for the here and now. And let me just say parenthetically, this is part of growing up, right, as a Christian. Our minds are renewed And as our thinking changes, the choices we make in life change. So in one sense, we're all pretty self-centered when we come to faith, especially if we come in our adult years. And so our mind, the way we think, needs to change. So he says again, verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. His illustration is of a first century shrewd businessman. Who would, have considered a great, who would have been considered a great success. However, in the eyes of God, and this is what matters, right? In the eyes of God, he was a successful failure because he made his plans without him. James underscores for us, by the way, if you're taking notes and um, 
an abbreviation for God, you just make a, a circle and put a line through the center. That's the first letter of God's name in the New Testament, theta, theos, right? So just a circle. Go ahead, do that out in the margin. Practice it. Because sometimes that's a blank you fill in. Just a circle and a line going through the center, and that's the Greek letter theta for theos, the first letter. And so you'll see people abbreviate God's name sometimes that way, or what looks like an X for Christ. It's not X mass, it's Christos. X is for Christos, right? Okay, that's a side note. James underscores for us that this man had the wrong attitude and that this businessman had made the wrong assumption. Wrong attitude, and so he makes the wrong, he made the wrong assumption. His attitude was wrong and that he was self-sufficient by living independently of God never praying or never even consulting God in his travel plans to go to the next city on his map. He had it all figured out, didn't he? He never prayed, Lord, where would you have me to go? But to the contrary, he spread out his map. He looked at the trend of business and thought, that's the city where I'm going. But not only did he plan the city that he would go, he also determined the period of time for which he would stay. And so, again, we read, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there. He took out his calendar and reasoned, this is what I am going to do next year without stopping to ask what God thought about it, for he just assumed that he had 365 days to use as he saw fit. His self-confidence is seen in that he not only determines the place he wanted to go and the period of time that he wanted to stay, he even determined his plan with its calculated outcome. He reasoned within himself that he would engage in business which indicates that he was some kind of merchant for the word. The Greek word business is, uh, we get our word emporium from it for a center of trade. So this is a business term. That's why we refer to him typically as a businessman. And he also very confidently predicted and boasted that he would make a profit. As sadly, it was not prayer that had him, but profit. Not prayer but profit. Am I going too fast? Oh, good. All right, good. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. The person that James describes in his illustration is not illustrated, is not interested in eternal treasure, but only in earthly profits that he had all mapped out. And again, through this course, among other things that we will look at is what really constitutes eternal treasure. Uh, We're not there yet. That's several weeks down the road, but it's an important topic when we get there. But again, unless you get the big picture, the smaller details won't take on the meaning that they need to. We must not forget that in this context, James is addressing prayerless Christians. That's the broader context. And so without judging them, We must take inventory of ourselves because we can be guilty of doing the very same thing. It may not be in the world of business, but it could be in the world of family 
or the world of marriage, or in the world of education, or leisure. Any number of realms, we can do the same thing. Each of us might ask ourselves about the past week as to how much time, if any, we took communing with God and asking Him about our plans. I don't care how small a plan it is. It may be an infinitesimal issue. I ask our staff when they come up here on Sunday morning and they invite people to fill out a guest card that before they do that, that they're on their knees that morning asking God to bless that invitation. Because there's a moment of spiritual battle that takes place even in that small little period of time as to whether or not people will fill out that card. Why is it important? Because it translates the opportunities to share the gospel and to win people to Jesus. The plans of the man in James's illustration were not wrong in themselves, but the man's problem was his wrong attitude and that he did not consider his complete dependence on God. Right? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. He reminds me of this text in Luke 12. Let me just read it to you. Luke 12, 18 through 20. Uh, this man, if you remember, Jesus is uh, dealing with two brothers who are fighting over an inheritance. And he says, look, beware and be on your guard about greed and other such things. And um, he tells them a parable about a rich man whose land was extremely productive, and he began reasoning to himself. Again, this is uh, self-talk independent of God talk. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like the American dream, doesn't it? Stuff it all in the bank so you can quit as soon as you can and sit on your can and play shuffleboard, I guess. I don't know. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. The day he said that, the Bible says he died. A warped perspective. Nothing wrong with retirement. Many people are forced to retire. But it's an opportunity to reinvest how you're going to use those years for the Lord. 18, if we wish to live with an eternal perspective, then we must plan our day with the Lord which has a way of changing one's perspective. So you start your day and say, you know, Lord Jesus, this is what I'm planning to do, but if you want to change the direction that you're going to take me in, I'm open, I'm yours, I'm your servant, whatever you want to accomplish today through me. Sadly, many of us live like this shrewd businessman. We are believers in Jesus Christ, but we are living like practical atheists. Please understand, again, this passage is not a prohibition against planning because the Bible is very clear that we should plan wisely. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 6, 
Um, you know, you should go through Proverbs, hopefully on a regular basis, because it teaches you how to live wisely, and there's one for every day of the month. That's a great thing to train your children and grandchildren in. And so I have a chapter title in my mind with every chapter in Proverbs. And of course, I always remember what's in Proverbs 6, because there's six things that the Lord hates. Yea, seven. That's Proverbs 6. But here in Proverbs 6, 6 to 8, go to the annals sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. This involves planning, such that in a season of plenty, we should set aside for the future for when there is a season of need. So you plan when there's plenty. You know, oh, we got all this extra money, let's spend extra. No, sometimes that's the opportunity to prepare for the dry times that are coming down the road. The average American has $400 in the bank, and I'm told, according to a recent Fox survey, they can go one week. Hmm. That's not too wise. Likewise, planning is seen in Ephesians 5.16 as the Apostle Paul instructs believers. He's talking to believers. Make the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. And of course, contextually, he'll go on and say, if you want to make the most of your time, then you need to be filled with the Spirit. That's why the sessions in this course on what it means to be spirit-filled and remember the four commands that God gives that describe our responsibility as to what it means to be spirit-filled are so important. Even the Lord Jesus, in describing what a true disciple looks like, he asks us to count the cost in following him. And so in that famous passage in Luke 14, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So, with that said, neither James, nor Jesus, nor Solomon would rebuke these merchants for their plans, and for that matter, would not condemn their desire to make a profit which happens to be a good thing if you're in business, right? Some of you came out of the business world, you don't want to lose every year, right? You, you hope to make a profit. That's a good thing. James is not rebuking them for their occupation or even for their anticipation, but for the secularization of their hearts and minds. God is not down on planning or profits, just on leaving him out. James is describing someone who is not thinking about God's glory and God's will and God's plans and God's kingdom from start to finish. There's not a word about God in their plans. James underscores for us that this man had not only the wrong attitude, but in verse 14, that this businessman also made the wrong assumption. Again, we read, yet you do not know what your life is like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Two truths you can count on in this life about the future. One is that only God knows the future. And the other is that we do not know the future, right? God alone knows it. We don't know it. Tomorrow's circumstances, they're totally uncertain, you could go home from church today, get a phone call, and in a moment's time, everything will change such that your life takes a new direction. 
James reminds us that we do not know what life will be like tomorrow, and so he would rebuke us in our pride when we underestimate our own limitations and make plans apart from our constant need for God. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, and again, that should at least be in your spirit. You don't have to always go around and say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. I met a guy like that. But that's the attitude in your heart, right? If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting, he says, is evil. It is nothing but sheer arrogance. That's what he calls it in verse 16. That makes us think that we can live and move and have our being independent of God. For such arrogance is the root of most sin. Right? That's what Eve reached out after. That's what Satan in the fall of the evil one. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. 14 times 2 is 28. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, right? The fall of Satan. Those great five I will statements. There are a lot of people in the cemetery this day who are not here, not because they ran out of plans, but because they ran out of life. This is, a, this is the very truth that James and Moses and King David and the Spirit who inspired each one to write these truths wants us to be changed by. If we live in light of eternity, then we must recognize life is very short so that as fragile humans, we set our hope on God, depending on Him. All right, that brings us to Roman numeral two. So Roman numeral one, again, we went through Psalm 39, Psalm 90, and James, among some other passages, life is short. And we need to live with that perspective because days turn into years, years turn into decades, and all of a sudden you're an old person. And we'll see, too, that if you started in the journey late, that's not a mark against you, but we're coming to that. Roman numeral two, we need to think and live with an eternal outlook. There's coming a time when each and every Christian will meet Christ in heaven, and each one of us, Romans 14, will have our lives evaluated. As we noted earlier in this lesson, the judgment believers encounter will not be a judgment to determine where we will spend eternity. The Bible is very clear that God's declaration concerning our guilt has already been settled, right? He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe the wrath of God abides on him. Son of man did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe is condemned already. So that's a settled deal. However, since God will evaluate how we invested our lives once saved, living with an eternal outlook is the wisest way to live. While God has given us all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6, an eternal perspective keeps us from chasing material gratification and dreams that have no eternal value. As our minds are renewed through Scripture, only then are we able to live with an eternal perspective. When a believer lives with an eternal perspective, he is able to consciously redirect his thoughts toward that which is eternal. This perspective is what will keep you from wasting, that will keep us from wasting our years, pursuing the temporal that we cannot take with us when we die. 
This is the outlook we should want to develop as God commands us in Colossians to intentionally redirect our thoughts toward that which is eternal so that we might evaluate the value of decisions we make based on their eternal significance. Again, how you think as a man thinks in his heart, that's what he becomes like. And this is why a pastor's chief role is to preach the word. I was asked today, why is it that so many Christians across America are ignorant on Bible prophecy? For the simple reason that pastors are no longer opening the word in teaching the text. Because it doesn't fill seats in the, with the same accelerating rate that a Rick Warren, Bill Hybels model fills seats. But the seats they typically fill are disastrous. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We will learn in this section that we will be rewarded in heaven based on our availability and our faithfulness to serve Christ in the fullness of the Spirit, according to His will, as revealed in His Word. It's a long sentence, but it's an important one. How we serve now as redeemed Christians can determine our reward for all of eternity. So we're going to say God's not putting you under some performance basis. We're saved by grace, we live by grace. And you'll often hear the cliche, God is not looking for people of great ability, but great availability. And by availability, people who are dependent on the Spirit of God to live His life in and through them. So first point A, believers will not face a judgment for sin. Believers will not face a judgment for sin. So whenever you speak about the judgment seat of Christ and the judgment of believers, you need to qualify, this is not a judgment for sin. When you think of God judging it is important to realize that there are actually a number of different kinds of judgments in Scripture. If you're with us in our prophecy series, we looked at six or seven different judgments. However, in the broadest sense of the definition, there are two kinds of judgments. The judgment of the lost and the judgment of the saved. So that's in the broadest sense, two kinds. In a broad sense, Jesus can speak of the unrighteous who will go into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. That's in that great parable of the sheep and goats judgment. One of a number of judgments that will take place. That judgment, if you remember, happens when Christ comes back and lands on the earth and he's judging those who survived the tribulation period. And they're judged according to how they treated the nation of Israel. There's sheep, there's goats, and then there's my brethren. It has nothing to do with the way it's often taught today. And so in the nations there are not like the United States and France. It's, it's the, uh, the, the goyim, it's the ethnoi, the ethnicities of the, pe- of the peoples of this world. Every ethnicity, every Gentile nation will be judged on how they dealt with Israel. Anyway, in the same way, when the Apostle Paul is preaching before Felix, he reminds him, out of a heart of compassion, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. It's compassionate, I hope you know, to remind people that there's hell. 
You don't need a Savior if there's not judgment and wrath. You don't need to be saved from anything. It's part of the gospel. We're explaining why Christ died a substitutionary death. The judgment that we want to explore in this session is not to be confused with the great white throne judgment in which Christ will judge all the lost from all of time for all of eternity. That's in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, of course. The Bible is clear that if someone is genuinely saved, that he will not face a judgment for sin. For this reason, Jesus could say in John 3.18, he who believes in him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So it's clear. This is like a radical verse, totally blowing out of the water what most people think about judgment. They think God determines in the future whether or not I'm guilty. No, he's already said you're guilty, all of us. By nature, we're children of wrath. The great white throne judgment is a declaration of what is already true. And in the perfect justice of God, he'll mete out wrath accordingly. While hell is terrible for everyone who goes, Revelation, Luke 16, a number of passages are clear that it's not the same for all. Seven, the Bible is clear that the person who believes in Jesus escapes condemnation, while the person who does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already with no way of escape, right? John 3.36. God tells us that the basis for a person's condemnation is someone's failure to believe God graciously has provided him with the Savior. I was going to say a Savior, but it's not a Savior. He's the Savior, right? He's the only Savior. Jesus made it plain that being a physical descendant of Abraham, as the Jews commonly believed, or in our day, being a member of, of a religious organization can save no one. And so you take, you know, a billion two Catholics, they're told unless they die with a mortal sin on their soul, they're in. They're in, they're a shoe in because the Holy Mother Church will save them. And there are people in Protestant realms who think in the same distorted and twisted way, just as the Jews did. We're sons of Abraham. We're good. We're Jewish people. We're a member of the chosen nation. And of course, God is clear. Christ is clear. Faith in Christ is the instrumental means. That's an important term you'll hear in the theological realms as you read commentaries and books. Faith in Christ, in other words, faith doesn't save. Grace saves. Faith is the instrument that procures what Christ has accomplished. Faith in Christ is the instrumental means by which we obtain salvation, as Jesus explained how salvation through faith becomes real, right? John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. And then John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. So again, it's clear in the whole context, faith is not meritorious. Faith can save no one. Christ saves. Faith is the instrumental means by which we receive that salvation. Concerning those who seemingly never had the opportunity to believe because they never heard of Jesus Christ is addressed at a later time in this course. Are the unevangelized really lost? 
And if you come to meet the pastor, you get that booklet. Um, but we cover that as one of the most 10 most commonly asked questions in the discovery class. And that's the question every one of your children and grandchildren ought to be able to know just like that. Because that is one of the most frequently asked questions that people will throw at them to dismantle their faith. There's true, sincere questions, and then there are what we call smoke screens. Smoke screens are questions that are thrown at you, not because they're looking for an honest answer, but they think they've come up with an excuse as to why they don't have to respond to the message that pierces the heart. You mean to tell me Jesus is going to send somebody to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whose name they've never even heard? What kind of a God do you worship? That's an important question, and it's an important question not just for unbelievers, but for believers. I mean, Seventh-day Adventists, they have a distorted view on that whole thing, right? God judges us according to the light. Well, that's true, but it's a half-truth. If you take a half-truth and you make it all the truth, most of the time you make it an untruth. And by that, what they mean is that there will be people who just didn't have much light and God will just say, you're okay. Why evangelize? Keep them in the dark, if that were true. That's a lie. The discovery class covers these issues, and this is why as you bring people here, I'd say nine out of ten people who come here, even as saved people, do not have a solid foundation. The discovery class will really change that. I repeatedly hear that class was life-changing, and people tell me that after they've been saved two or three decades. Why? Because no one gave them the foundation after they were born again. What is clear here is that when one trusts Christ as Savior and Lord, they will never be judged, just as Jesus also made evident in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, amen, amen, literally. In other words, listen up, this is important. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him, the Father who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Jesus, having just said that he gave life to whom he wishes in John 5, 21, now he describes that the one who hears his word and believes him, that is the Father who sent the Son into the world. So he describes the one who hears his word and believes him, that is the Father who sent the Son into the world. In John, and by the way, this is important in John 5 because some people say, well, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. In, in John 5, Jesus makes it clear, you can't say you believe in God without believing in Jesus. Because if you don't believe the word that Jesus spoke, and he said, everything that I speak, I saw the Father do, then you don't believe the Father's word. And that argument is totally dismantled in John the fifth chapter. In John 5, he uses the healing of the paralytic. That's how the chapter opens, if you remember. The Pool of Bethesda. To teach us about salvation. For just as his word had brought new life to the paralytic, even so our response to his word will bring eternal life or eternal death. Remember, John has seven miracles. They're called semion. There are Four different words in the Greek New Testament for miracles. John uses the word for miracle. That means a miracle with a message. 
And so with the seven recorded miracles, five that are unique to his gospel, like the one here in John 5, there's a message behind them that he doesn't want us to meet, miss. And of course, the bigger message is these things, many other miracles Jesus did in the presence of the disciples, but these have been recorded, he says, in the end that you might have life and might have life in his name. Anyway, let me keep going here. Jesus is clear that his word is equal to the Father's word, since the Son only says what the Father gives him to say, as John 3.19, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. So, this is going somewhere, stay here. (laughs) The promise from the Father through the Son is that without exception, he who hears my word and believes him, the Father who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Therefore, whatever you decide to do with the words of life that Jesus speaks, will determine what God the Father will do with you. Jesus is clear that hearing his word and belief in the Father who sent him is absolutely essential to escape judgment for sin and to pass from the position of death and condemnation to the position of life. The believer will not be judged for his sin. It's also taught in Romans 8, Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This three-letter word now emphasizes the truth that I do not have to wait for some final judgment to find out whether or not I will be accepted by God because salvation is based on Jesus' finished work. The promise of Romans 8.1 is that there is now no condemnation, reminding us that we have a new standing with God, a new standing with God that can never change, having permanently removed us from future condemnation. Again, when you're talking about the believer's judgment, this is going somewhere, it's important because people say, well, wait a minute, I thought I passed out of judgment, that there is no condemnation that I'll never be judged. And we're speaking about the distinction between the judgment for sin and the judgment for service. If salvation is based or kept on my performance, then I could not know now, but only in the future, that there is no condemnation. We have already noted from John 3.18 that the judgment is not later. It is right now because God's verdict is based on whether or not you are in Christ Jesus forgiven or outside of Christ condemned. Right? He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Unless you are in Christ, which, by the way, is the simplest definition of a Christian in the New Testament. You're in him. You're either identified in the Lord Jesus and in his righteousness, or you're still standing in your own. 
And that's not a good place to end. Because of our identification to Adam, because we sinned in and with Adam, Romans 5.12 underscores that, and are conceived, therefore, in sin, Psalm 51.5, and sin did my mother conceive me, right? And are born with a bent to do wrong, we have already been tried and found guilty. So you can't get up into heaven and say, Adam, man, you are a creep. You know, I wanted to give you a punch in the nose back there on earth if I could have. Now I'm in heaven. I don't have a sin nature, so I don't think that way anymore. But, you know, you messed it all up. And God would say, oh, no, he didn't. You messed it up with him. You sinned in and with Adam. This is why John 3, John chapter 3, the great love chapter, ends by saying, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. By the way, notice the tense. It's present. These erroneous thinkers who say you can lose salvation. That's just stupidity, and it's a false truth, and it puts people in bad theology for living the Christian life. You cannot lose something that's eternal. He that believes has this moment eternal life. And so when Jacobus Arminius in the 16th century, decided that you could lose eternal life. They thought he was a heretic. We don't think that way anymore. But it's a distortion of the plain teaching of Scripture. It's not a small secondary issue. It's a primary issue because you're downgrading the price and the accomplishment of what Jesus made on the cross. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer condemned, all right? So that's point A. Believers will not face a judgment for sin. Point B, believers will face a judgment for service. We have a judgment for service. While we will not face a a judgment for our sin, our service will be judged. Our service will be judged. Because of Christ's gracious work on the cross, we will not face our sins, but we'll have to give an account of our works in service for God. Again, a circle with a line through it, right? (laughs) Sometimes Christians falsely conclude that since they have been saved from the penalty of sin, that they will not have to give an account for the way they have prayed or witnessed or given or served or sacrificed. It is true that we will never be condemned for our sins and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but this does not mean there is no evaluation for the believer in heaven. While there are many passages that deal with the believer's judgment, there are at least four central passages that are foundational. If you go to seminary and you study much theology, one term that you will hear over and over and over again is what's called a central passage. And you will read that and pick it up in commentaries. You might say, what are they talking about? When they refer to a central passage, if this is a new term to you, they're talking about one of the major passages that maybe underscores the theological truth. And there are four central passages. There's dozens of passages that speak of the believer's judgment and evaluation. But there are four central passages that highlight this very truth. All right, so um, consider Paul's instructions to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. 
chapter 5. I had you fill that in because this is one of the central passages. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing with him. This was Paul's, the King James doesn't say ambition, his labor. We have as our labor. The ESV says our aim. The net Bible goes with the NES, ambition. Uh, The CJB, a Jewish translation, says utmost. Um, We have as our goal, um, our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to him. There is what the Bible calls selfish ambition, right? Remember that in Philippians 2? Paul said, yeah, there's some people who are preaching the gospel for self-serving reasons, but I'm glad it's being preached. Selfish ambition. That is, that's both self-centered and worldly. But there is also a holy ambition, and that was Paul's great ambition to be pleasing to Jesus. He knew God can never bless a man-pleasing ministry that compromises the truth because you have to compromise in order to please men. (laughs) There is no way you can preach the whole counsel of Scripture and please people. You will make them mad. So I brought in Mike Gendron, which I thought was a phenomenal ministry. He preaches to hundreds of thousands of people. And some person, oh, I brought my friend, and they got all mad because... He said this about Roman Catholics. Well, he didn't say anything. I haven't been preaching for 30 years, so I'm not sure what was new. But yeah, it made him mad. Why? Because they were believing a lie. You preach the counsel of God, you will make people mad. That's just the way it is. Paul was not a man pleaser. His ambition was to please Jesus. And his sermons, by the way, went on for hours, one time till midnight. I preached an hour and 20 minutes on Sunday morning. I needed to thin the crowd out a little bit. I'm serious. I want to see who's really earnest. I'm not here to fill seats. By God's grace, I want to make disciples, converts who mature in their faith. There's plenty of churches you can find if you want to have fluff. He knew God can never bless a man-pleasing ministry that compromises the truth because you have to compromise in order to please men. Many of the believers and even pastors, the Apostle Paul's day, just like many in our day, served to please men. But Paul ministered to be pleasing to Jesus alone as he now shares one of his motivations we should have. This is one of many motivations, by the way, that's found in that chapter. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Verse 10 begins with the little word for. It's what theologues or linguists call an explanatory guard. In other words, sometimes there's this little particle that means because, or sometimes there's a little word that choose. let me explain and broaden and elucidate the point I'm trying to make. That's what he's doing here. So it begins with the little word for. Here's the explanation as to why, among other reasons, that he'll give in that chapter, we should live to please Christ because a day will come when we will stand at his judgment seat for a personal life evaluation. 
He has already stated in verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when our service on earth is over, the opportunity to to be pleasing to him and our service will have expired. It will be over. Now, again, like you deal with people who call themselves Reformed Christians, it's all based on a, a weak view of Israel and the church. And someone asked me, I mean, there was being questioned on the radio today, and I said, look, I, I have behind me five solas of the Protestant Reformation. So in that sense, I am a Reformed Christian. I believe we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. There's the five solas. But I said, if you think I am Reformed in the sense that God is done with Israel, I don't believe that for one skinny minute. And so when you deal with people in Reformed faith, they take, you know, the sheep-goat judgment, they take this judgment that we're studying, the great white, it's just all one big judgment. The next movement is we all just get swept into heaven. And again, part of this comes out of the anti-Semite thinking of Augustine, who fed the popes that would follow, and these men who are saved out of Catholicism, Calvin, Luther, I mean, it's embarrassing what they said. Their theology has caught in our day where people think the church has replaced Israel. And so you have to spiritualize hundreds of passages in Scripture to come to that conclusion. I noted on Sunday, Zechariah predicted Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a donkey, that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. This is in Zechariah that they'd strike the shepherd and the, shepherd, the sheep would flee, the apostles. That he would be pierced through for our iniquities, which John said they witnessed while he was there on the cross. Those four prophecies alone were literally fulfilled in Zechariah. What makes us think that the rest of the prophecies in that great prophet are going to now be spiritualized? Oh, he doesn't really mean he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two because we're all just going to heaven and there's one big judgment. You see, and it's sadly theology done out of experience because for nearly 1,900 years, people reason God is done with the Jews. They're not in the land. He, it's over. And it was easy to sell. But it's a bad sale. And so this is a judgment that believers face. What number are we on? 14? 13. We know that this judgment is for Christians only for many reasons. First, since the Apostle Paul is speaking of a judgment that he himself will face, is seen by his use of the first person pronoun we. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Then we can know that this judgment is for believers only. The first person pronoun, he includes himself. We, that means he's saved. This is not of lost people. This is of believers. We can know this is judgment for Christians only. Second, since he is in this context describing events that according to verse 8 must take place when a believer is at home with the Lord, then we can know that he's dealing only with true Christians in heaven. 
And so, again, that's the context, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Look, we want to be pleasing to him. We're going to appear at his judgment seat. This judgment takes place in heaven. Unbelievers, uh, and we know that it's only true Christians, right? You got that. 16, unbelievers are never judged in heaven. For their final judgment is after the destruction of the present earth and right before God creates a new heaven and a new earth filled with righteousness, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so if you remember at the end of the millennium, God destroys the planet we're on. He burns it with fire. Then he makes a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. He's not going to fix up this old one. That is a popular view that has been around for about 20 years. It's just not accurate. He's going to burn it with fire. He's going to make a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And between those two points, the scripture is clear. There's a judgment. I guess it's in outer space somewhere. But it's not going to infect God's new heaven and in his new earth and all the lost of all time. The only people who are present in Revelation 20, 11 to 15 are lost people. There's no believers there. Third, the context of this verse also indicates that Paul could not only be described, could only be describing a believer, since only a Christian could have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, in verse one, right? He talks about this body is like a tent, right? You know what a tent is like? After a while, they get wear, worn out and they begin to leak and they get holes in it. That's what this life is like. I'm in my tent. I'm looking for my house, something far more permanent that God's going to provide for us someday. Fourth, as brought out in verse five, only a believer could experience the indwelling work of God who gives us the Spirit as a pledge. You'll read that in different places, Ephesians 1 and Corinthians as well, right? The Spirit of God is our pledge. He's our earnest. He's our down payment. He's our guarantee that what God started, he will complete. Again, this is all in the context of believers. And fifth, the judgment seat of Christ is a very different place from the great white throne John sees for all the lost. Only lost are there. Sometimes you will hear pastors and theologians describe the place where Christians stand in heaven as the Bema. Sometimes you'll hear this judgment called just the Bema. Because the Greek noun, Bema, is translated in English with the words judgment seat. So the word bema in Greek means judgment seat. And there's an article in front of it in the Greek New Testament. So it's the bema, or we might call it the judgment seat. We're told, for instance, in Matthew 27, 19, that Pontius Pilate was sitting on the bema, the judgment seat, when he reviewed Christ's case. That was one of the uses of a bema. Likewise, in Acts 18, 12, in Corinth, the apostle Paul stood at the bema. Some of you went with me on a footsteps of Paul thing, and the, the, the very bema he stood at, still there. It's amazing how it's been preserved. But while Galileo, Galileo was a proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Same word, Bema. In the first century, a Bema was also a platform in Greek towns where orations were made or decisions were handed down. And so there in Philippi, we saw a different Bema, much less assuming, much smaller, not where judgments were handled, handed out, but where uh, rewards were done and announcements were made. These platforms have also been unearthed by archaeologists in places where an athletic competition was held. So a judge could see and evaluate the athletes in order to reward the coveted laurel wreath. 
Suck it up with me. Let's, let's finish these two pages, all right? If two athletes competed against one another, one would receive the prize on his head, while the other, who failed to win the race, he was not punished. He simply did not receive the prize. As we will see, what is in view at Jesus' judgment is not a time of punishment, for that has been satisfied, but a time of reward. That's the focus of the judgment seat of Christ. It's a reward seat. This is not a tribunal to see whether you are saved or lost and then put into heaven or hell, but rather this is a place that will evaluate how well you have lived your Christian life. The judgment seat of Christ was a real issue in the apostle's life, Apostle Paul's life, and it is thinking because in the very next verse he begins, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. He did not want to face the possibility that his life will be revealed as one wasted and spent in selfishness rather than in obedience to Jesus. And so while every believer may not be as ambitious for the Lord as Paul, every believer like him is going to appear before Christ. This is clear from the first person pronoun we found in verse 10. And this truth is echoed in many other passages like Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. One day, you and I are going to have to face Jesus Christ as a believer. And Christ at this judgment will basically say, this was your life. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds, his works in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The Greek verb in 2 Corinthians 5.10 here for appear literally means to be revealed. And so this judgment seat of Christ is a place of revelation. As we live and work here on earth, sometimes it is relatively easy to hide things and to pretend. However, someday the true character of our works will be exposed before the searching eyes of the Savior. God is speaking here about the deeds done in your body or life. Body stands for life here, right? From the time you receive Christ as your Savior until the day the Lord takes you home to be with him when he will review and reveal your works. All right, let's slide in for home. 36, Jesus will reveal. He's going to reveal the character of our deeds done as born-again believers. We're going to study this in depth next time. As good or bad, or in some translations, as good or worthless. There are some service that's done, and we'll see why it's just nothing but worthless. One of the more detailed explanations of the judgment seat of Christ is found in 1 Corinthians 3, where the Apostle Paul compares... <clears throat> our service to the Lord Jesus, to that of the construction of a building. You know what? In fairness to our workers, I'm going to end right there, and we'll pick it up here next week, all right? All right, let's, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Now, as our heads are bowed, maybe there is someone right now that you want to lift up to the Lord that you would like to see maybe come with you, or maybe you don't have anyone yet, but in your heart, would you just say, Lord Jesus, give me someone Give me someone I can bring to the Valentine's banquet if that fits your venue.
Father, we know unless you build the house, we labor in vain that build it. We want to be used as a church body to bring people into your kingdom. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us with Todd Friel. We pray you'd protect him and guard his heart and life and prepare the message that he has for believers and unbelievers alike. We pray because of our efforts that people would come into the kingdom. Thank you for those who out of the fall festival visited and have already been baptized. We just ask that you'd lead us to those individuals that you would want us to care about. Father, we think about one of our members, Don Lopez, uh, in ICU with double pneumonia. Really, I suppose, fighting for his life. He needs a turnaround. And we just ask that you do that for him. That you'd intervene tonight. We pray for Mike Stacy as he lost his brother today. Bring comfort to his soul. Our Father, we remember Bob Stevens, one of our faithful deacons. Thank you that you privileged me to baptize him over 30 years ago. Now he went on and served and here just a few Sundays ago, but now in heaven. We pray as his family gathers in this room tomorrow with their friends. The Spirit of God would bring comfort and that he would bring home the gospel to those who need to be saved. Father, we know that someday we will stand face to face with your Son to whom all judgment has been given. And we want to be pleasing to him. Thank you that you not only save us, but you equip us, that you provide the Spirit as our helper if we are willing to yield to him and depend on him. Help us not to be like the foolish businessman that we read of tonight who made his plans without you, but help us to live each day moment by moment that as we've received Christ by grace through faith so that we would walk in him. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.